You're listening to the Tag Team Podcast, the podcast that is a WWE Network companion. Currently covering 1984 WWF Tuesday Night Titans. And now here are your Tag Team Podcast hosts, Jeff Jones and John Burke. This is the Tag Team Podcast. I'm John Burke. I'm Jeff Jones. What is up? What is up? That is the deed. Episode number two. We have made it. We have. Some said it couldn't be done. Hell with them. We try real hard. Gotta do what we do. And we did it faster than the two-week gap between episode one and episode two in Tuesday Night Titans. Technology, man. That's what makes it happen. Take that, Vince. And we have a small budget, so. This is true. Makes things a little more convenient for us. Keep those PayPal donations coming in. Please, Patreon, go. Get on that. What's been going on on your side of the world, man? I uh, got new cans, as I like to call in the business. Got rid of the iPod earphones. Got some new cans. How are they doing? So far, so good. Hearing Tuesday Night Titans like it was probably never meant to be heard. Hearing their recording equipment and some stuff and things like that. But I can ignore squealing on occasion. It doesn't last the whole episode. It's like little five-second intervals here and there throughout the show. I'll hear some high-pitched noise. So you were hearing the subliminal messages that you're not supposed to hear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know if you've watched it on the computer or not any of the episodes, but if you don't maximize it, it seems like you can see some of the video side like like there's something in the background almost it's it's kind of weird i have not but i will do that actually just like you're saying you can see more of the background or you can just see more of the screen all around it's like well, only on certain things it's not like the whole episode but it's like there's a blue screen type thing in the background like i don't know a testing screen or something that sometimes bleeds through in the far right corner oh oh like the backdrop that Vince McMahon sits behind probably i don't know i think they had green screen in 84 oh yeah, almost definitely. I'm not up on my green screen history. I'll have to research that for our next podcast. Definitely. We need a report, two-page, single-space. That'd be Mosley. great. I'll get right on that. So what's going yeah. on with you, man? Oh, computer catastrophes. Got a uh, solid state decided to dial me and went into pure frantic mode trying to get another hard drive and actually trying to do without a computer for a long time for me. Anyway, it's like not having air. I'd rather be on a computer than watch TV. It's really my lifeline. Went ahead and had a Corsair 256 gig solid state drive and went online to an undisclosed auction site. Can't say what it was. Don't want to bet against our listeners, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Can't tell me my secrets. Yeah. But I did find some 600 gig SATA 3 Raptors, 10,000 RPMs. Mind you, mechanical. I know, mechanical. For about 18 bucks a piece. I went out, got out pretty good so far. UPS says they should be here Saturday. They're coming from California. So we'll see how that goes. Silicon Valley. Yeah. By way of Hong Kong. People say it's a downgrade. I just need something that works. And I remember when I did computer work for guys and worked in a shop. 07, 08, we had the Raptors. And we would do them a raid zero. And they would just scream bloody murder. I think I'm going to be happy with, with my Raptors. They are doing pretty good in the NBA this year. I have to take your word on it. <laughs> But oddly enough, now that you mentioned that, I've been watching hockey more than I should. Oh, there's no hockey talk on here, my friend. Well, I'll, I'll save that for the other podcast. Then. Yes, the Hockey Night Friday Night podcast. Definitely. Well, there's only four periods and no power play. Sure. Something like that. I don't know. I'm still learning. Just trying to get into it a little bit. Try to do something different. Everybody has their own. Some people watch TV shows and binge watch this, and some people like sports. And you have people like me that just doesn't. So I'm trying to be with the in crowd. Some people do podcasts. Yeah, some people do podcasts and watch sports. Weirdos. Not naming names. Okay, well, with that, let's dive right in.
Ready to get into some territory talk there, Jeff? Let's do it. I'm ready. Let's talk May 1984 timeline with territories. Territory. Wrestling territories. And for you youngsters out there, <laughs> wrestling territories is something that may be foreign to you, but at one time in the United States alone, there were 25 or 30 wrestling territories that were headquartered around the country. Last time, when we talked territories, we did St. Louis and Minnesota. This time around, we're going to go a little bit further north. We're going to do Toronto and New York. Both were pretty instrumental in the developing territories for Vince's glamorous empire of professional wrestling. I'm going to go ahead and let Bosley take Toronto, and I'm going to do New York. Bosley? Territory talk. Toronto. Toronto is in a slump and Vince not known at the time was about to buy out the Maple Leaf Wrestling TV show in July away from Jack Tunney, future on-TV figurehead president of WWF. He made Tunney the figurehead president to replace Hisashi Shinma who was the fake head of WWF from 1978 to 1984. Jack Tunney also served as the legitimate president of Titan Sports Canada, the local arm of the WWF's parent company. Following the WWF takeover in 1984, the name Maple Leaf Wrestling continued to be used for the Federation's Canadian TV program, a staple of Hamilton Station CHCH-TV for many years, which the WWF took over production of after the Tunneys split from the NWA. The show was hosted by Angelo Musca and Jack Reynolds. TV tapings for the show were held in Brantford and other cities in southern Ontario for the next two years, until the WWF ceased the tapings in 1986. Jack Tunney. Good times. He was definitely, when I was watching WWF, was the figurehead president. He'd always make the final rulings for matches and stuff. You'd never see Vince on TV putting together Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan. It would always be Jack Tunney having to sit down there in a conference room, boardroom, and have them sign out a contract or demand a match for this wrestler and that wrestler inside of a steel cage or whatever. Moving on, New York. New York basically at the time wasn't just owned by one promotion. It was kind of like a mecca, pretty much like it is for everything going on today in sports and concerts and stuff like that. It's just one big show and lots of wrestling companies took advantage of it. New York could thrive three or four promotions, but the WWF was the only one to try to make a permanent stay there. The joint promotion of Georgia Championship Wrestling, which was owned by Jack and Jerry Briscoe last month as they go on to sell their interest in the Georgia Championship Wrestling to Vince McMahon. Along with Ole Anderson from Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, the show would be held in the Meadowlands in New Jersey. In May, the only TV available is a Spanish station at that time, and Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling promoter Jim Crockett was going to take full advantage of that and try to push their Puerto Rican star Carlos Colon as one of the headliners and would going to probably run an angle with Flair and Race on top. When the Meadowlands main event was finally set, it was May 29th. Basically, it Side note, WCCW had a NWA tribute show for David Von Erich with his passing, and they let Kerry Von Erich beat Ric Flair, so technically Ric Flair wasn't the champion at this time, but you wouldn't know it if you were living in New Jersey and listening to radio ads. They ended up going with Flair and Steamboat as the choice for the match, as most independent wrestling promotions would tell you nowadays. If you want to watch a good wrestling match, watch any Flair or Steamboat match. They're two of 
of the best performers, along with the psychology of wrestling, and that's mostly what they would tell you to watch if you wanted to learn how to do a great match. They could have gone with Rhodes at the time, Race, but they knew Steamboat would definitely be the best match for Ric Flair. So when they ignored the carry title win, they just basically announced Ric Flair as the champion on all the TV leading up to the Meadowlands shows. So unlike today, you could get away with it back then, letting people know that Ric Flair is a champion, and most likely they probably have no idea what's going on in Texas, so they wouldn't call you out on it or two and two together or anything like that. Damn the internet. Damn it all. You ready to recap the second episode of Tuesday Night Titans? Yes, do this. Tuesday Night Titans, June 12th, 1984, exactly two weeks after the first one aired, as we related to in the last episode. In this episode, they totally blew me out of the waters with their formatting. They screwed me, like Bret Hart in Canada. I thought all the matches would be joined in progress, and this whole episode, other than some clips towards the end, they basically started all the matches from the beginning. Thank you WWF. I was a little surprised myself to see Mr. Wonderful still in his robe after the Paula chance as you say. I was ready for a, a quick match and then on to some more, I call it office shenanigans at the desk, but they actually did a full match with Mr. S.D. Jones versus Mr. Wonderful. It was kind of crazy. I wasn't expecting that format at all, but this is television recorded earlier and apparently they had maybe some feedback from the first episode. I don't know. Maybe they just decided it looks better on TV to start a match from the beginning to the end instead of halfway in progress. But in all fairness, it was a pretty short match between SD Joe and Mr. Wonderful. I don't really remember out of all the matches which one. I guess maybe Piper's might have been the longest. I don't know. We'll get to it. First up, we got Paul Orndorff versus everyone's favorite lovable loser, SD Jones. And apparently we're in progress and know that Paul Orndorff is not a fan of Paul Abdul. I'm not sure what she did to him but he does not like to hear her name when he's at the ring getting ready to wrestle no he was delaying that the bell had already rang and he was actually delay of game sports thing there for you when he was still messing with the crowd instead of actually they're ready to wrestle and the ref even acknowledged paula or paulendorf rather told him he needed to go ahead and let's, let's get the match going yeah they should have just started counting just count them out but he was in the ring I know, just count them out, just like disqualification, rope break type thing. Typical five count would be nice. Mass confusion everywhere. At the four minute and four second mark, some old man had half a blow-up doll with Paula written across the chest. I noticed that immediately and thought, this is the 80s. This is this is it. But either he or the lovely event staff at wherever they wrestled at censored it for him. So did not see any anatomic parts. No, the sign and just the fact that it was a blow-up doll in 84, that kind of blew me away. No pun intended, blow-up doll. <laughs> none, none at all. That blew me away. The one to see in that, like, what is going on here? Maybe that was one of those people that's supposed to do crazy stuff. Yeah, and one of the matches that I Mean Gene was commentating on, he called the sign graffiti. I like that. Old school. Vandal. <laughs> Some of the graffiti here. It's like, what's he talking about? The bathrooms? What's going on? How dare you pay money and make signs? Exactly. Paul Orndorff versus S.D. Jones. S.D. Jones, we'll get a little bit into him probably as we progress, because this seems to be the episodes where they like to reuse talent that they've already shown on the show. A few of the guys had double matches or so. You'd see a couple of the same wrestlers wrestling different guys. Mostly the enhancement talent were on here a couple times, but even some of the non-enhancement talent were on here a couple times so definitely got their fair share of getting the name out there for different wrestlers because they showed a bunch of them 
twice. I concur. I concur. SD Jones is basically your, I don't know, what would you call him in today's world? He's better than James Ellsworth. I think it would go with Heath Slater before the whole tag team thing. Heath Slater was a lovable loser for a while there before he got his whole new gimmick that he's doing currently. SD Jones was about the same. He got some belts and tags, just not much in the WWF. And I think his greatest accomplishment was being Andre the Giant's tag team partner later on. Maybe a Zack Ryder? How dare you. Sir. Yeah, probably a Zack Ryder. Except Zack Ryder won the Intercontinental Championship at WrestleMania, and SD Jones is known for having the fastest match in WrestleMania, ending in a loss. I think it's even right across the board right there. You Intercontinental title, and you lose it quicker than you got it, and you lost your WrestleMania match quicker than you're out of the ring than you are in the ring. I think that's pretty good balance. Maybe so. I'm biased. The finish for this was a power driver, and doing the commentary for this was Mean Gene and Lord Alfred Hayes. Power driver, which Mean Gene is quick to inform us should be outlawed should be allowed i think that was still some controversy in most of the promotions the power driver is it too devastating of a maneuver to be used without crippling someone i think owen hart has proved that it's not it's totally safe yeah that's stone cold agrees i think it's fine but that is one thing that i did like about the match anyway the, the finish was simple and no one really kicked out of those moves even though it's a basic move nowadays that you used to see or like the ddt you see people one, two, oh, he kicked out this. No, you know. All right, his feet's in the air. It's pretty much the ball game. Let's get ready to stand up, get your popcorn, move on to the next show. Those days, anyway, I miss the days where it's just simple. You know, once they set up for the pile driver, hands on the knees, pushing, they're fine. You know, it's over. You know, they're going to win. No false finishes back then. Now, I did dig up some SD Jones facts. You may have some of these, so. Lay it on me. He wrestled in the NWA under Crockett Promotions. He was a three-time tag team champion. Three-time Three time, three time. And also he was Andre the Giants tag team partner whenever Andre had his hair cut by Ken Patera and Big John Studd. That was on November 13th, 1984. I looked and I didn't see that it was on a pay-per-view or a special event. It seemed like it was just a regular regular one of those house shows. And I think Andre was ready for that. Sounds garden-esque. Sounds like something they would do in the garden, but could be on that Andre the Giant home coliseum link that we put out there for last week. I never watched all that. I just saw the first clip had the match from episode one, so might be on that. We will go back and watch. The link on the facebook.com forward slash the tag team podcast. I believe that is the link that I was referring to. Check that out. Let's go there and see what those guys are up to. Right after the Paul Orndorff SD Jones match, they decided to do a little vignette on Mr. Orndorff to show that he is better than the common man as he tries to get other people to have the body that he has. And that being said, we should probably discuss real quick what the theme for this episode is. If I had to theme it, I would say workout physique episode seemed to be the underlining theme for this whole episode. Each wrestler had a wonderful physique and they've been working out and you can tell it seemed to be everything that they would comment about every wrestler and every clip just about one of the two words would come up i was a little uncomfortable with mr wonderful gym edition i always thought when you go to the gym especially if you had a trainer or a role model we'll say 
quote, quote, that you're supposed to be very encouraging and be positive. Mr. Wonderful was quite the opposite. Very conceited, self-centered, very, you want my body. This is a man. This is what a real man is supposed to look like. But don't worry, because you'll never be as good as Mr. Wonderful. You'll never look like Mr. Wonderful. But he's there to help you. He starts off with a group of five people training at a gym who knows where. And he's wearing a jumpsuit and jacket. And he says that he'll be right back after he gets changed into his clothes. But in reality, it looks like he just took off the pants and unzipped the jacket. And is wearing even less clothes than he was to begin with. Comes out in some classic 1984 shorts. And in this gym, it's okay to not have shirts. As the guys were not wearing any shirts in any of these clips. And that leads me to this observation as I'm watching this. I think that the shorts could have just been just a little bit longer. And I think his socks could have been just a little bit shorter. But then he'd be a nerd. <laughs> I suppose so. I guess that makes him more of an ass the way he dresses. So I guess that fits it just beep. right. Yeah, yeah. You beep out the ass, not the because <laughs> the is a bad word. He dressed for the part. Yeah, for sure. He wanted to show off his physique, and the only way to do that is by not wearing a shirt. Count were three women and two guys, but as the vignette progresses, we only end up seeing one woman and the same two guys. So I guess the other two ladies left. I don't know. Maybe they were taking his advice and doing what he told them to do. Said that one needed to eat more. Maybe that's where she was at. Didn't need to be a gym. She just needed to eat more. And then he told the other lady to step away from the table. Yeah, he doesn't like people that are big. What an a not cool at all. Starts off at the bicep machines. He walks up and he is very disgusted with the form and then he proceeds to show the guy how to do it. You need to think about it. You're going to have to squeeze your muscles. He was given proper techniques and proceeds to flex to show why you need those proper techniques. And then it was something about wellness, smellness policy and how to inject. I don't know. Yeah, don't share your needles. I think was one of the other things I got at the end of the segment there after all. The next guy beside him was doing them properly but he wasn't doing enough weight. He claims that his grandma worked out with that much weight that the guy was doing. He had the technique down, mind you. So he proceeds to load just about all the weight plates on the curl machine. His grandma probably doesn't have to adhere to the wellness policy, so she probably actually does do that much. Grandma's probably jacked. I'm sure. She don't make cookies. She makes protein bars. That's what little Paula likes to eat. Little Paula. So now we move on to my favorite lady. She is at the pick machine trying to figure out how to put the belt on. And he asked her, has she ever been on a plane? Does she know how a seatbelt works? This is 84. A lot of people still haven't been on a plane. They're not all like David Schultz and flew on the Concorde or put in to go on the space shuttle. And they didn't wear seatbelts? Nope. Didn't have to wear seatbelts in 84. Just adults did. Kids were fine flying around the back seats. Good old days. You had mom and dad's arm. You can go anywhere. Exactly. Safe. He Backward. made the comment that most fat women don't have all their teeth as he's helping this poor lady with pectoral section. He says, well, at least she does, as referring to her having all of her teeth. And he also comments saying, hey, you need to stay away from that table. You need to listen to your husband. Don't argue. I sort of had a little family flashback, and I can relate with that completely. Uh, my dad says the same thing on a regular basis. He's single, ladies. Your dad's Paul Orndorff? My dad is a Paul Orndorff without the steroids, just the mouth and the brain. Is it idle growing up in 84. That's what he lived by. Paul Orndorff vignettes. He's going to like next week, I heard. Yeah, he was on the, the peck machine and he wanted to inform her 
why she was doing it. Big text. That's what we want. Big text. Your husband will love big text. There you go. She was really the only one that actually talked. I don't know if she was going off script, just winging it. None of the other guys said anything. That's Mr. Wonderful. What can you say? Oh, my God. He helped me. Thank you. Yes. Whatever he says. You have to do it. Mr. Orndorff. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Then they go from there to the tricep machine, and he can't fit her in there, so he has to give her a good shove. I'm not sure what happened to that machine. I've never seen a tricep machine like that before. It must have died in the 80s or 90s. Usually it's a pull-down bar type thing, and here it's like some kind of sit-down thing where they have your arms go inside these, I don't know what you'd call them, mechanisms that go forward and back, and you kind of like do karate chops to work your triceps instead of pulling down on anything definitely a different type of machine than what i've used to seeing in gyms nowadays you know i really think that that gym was in florida because the motion of that tricep machine is the same motion that the tomahawk taunt does for florida state you see so i think there's something related there could be atlanta braves they both steal the same motion but too much sports and wrestling is a bad thing moving on he pushes her in there stuffs her in there and she has to do 40 reps and he just keeps on telling her that it doesn't matter how many reps he said to do she just needs to do them so i think she does maybe five i don't know maybe six reps a good six what we call a good six i think she did well for him barking orders and kicking her and ladies and gentlemen he helped her with his foot to get into that machine to make sure she fit man he would not help her out hey she got in she can get out and as he's moving over to the ad machine my favorite lady tries to get an autograph i guess from mr wonderful and don't ever touch mr wonderful because he he doesn't like that get your hands off of me you fat pig Yes, apparently he does not like that, but he is quick to forgive, as we find out in the next segment of this vignette. The ad machine, he's sort of like the other machines. The guy's not using enough weight, so he puts more weight on there and shows him how to do crunches to have a body like him instead of the puny little body that this guy has, who's obviously on the wellness policy. Looks more natural. And I believe he got five or six, and that's the problem. He quits. When the tough gets going, he quits. He's not like Mr. Wonderful. God bless him. We need more people like Mr. Wonderful. So the mysterious lady that he kicks out returns in the next segment, the segment that I like to call the Paul Orndorff mirror pose down. You see, once again, all five people miraculously show back up. The two women, I guess, are done eating that needed to gain weight, and the big lady did not heed Mr. Wonderful's words, and she comes back also. And he's cool with that. And I'm cool with that, too. He just got a little hot-tempered, that's all. He just got a little excited. He's being touched. I concur. So he can forgive, like you say. Good job, Mr. Wonderful. Way to be the bigger man. After that, we join Mr. Salvatore Palumbo, and Mr. Palumbo ends up coming out there and yelling at Vince McMahon in the only way he knows how. Salvatore, welcome to TNT. Welcome. Very happy to be in your show. Thank you very much. As you can tell from the clip, it's sort of SNL-like. He has a hard time controlling the volume of his voice. It's set to low. And doesn't really raise too much at all. I thought the mic was broken originally. Some of the other guys came out there. They were a little low too. But I think Salvatore being low on top of the mic not being the best was not the perfect combination for television. And I think his hobby that he brings about to the to the show is a reason why he's very self-spoken. I would like to see him try to get over in 21st century uh, WWE with how they manage doing most of his talking. However, Vince was very impressed that he knew his name and Lord Alfred Hayes liked to say his name. Say it. I'd like to hear him say Salvatore. Salvatore. 
That's very good. Dance, monkey, dance. All right. But Mr. Salvatore likes to build things, likes to build ships. While you and I, and maybe the people listening, would think, oh, he likes to do ships inside of bottles. No. Mr. Salvatore likes to do magazines, ships, the other ships that we all think of. Well, I didn't really know they existed. I'd just seen the, the bottles and the little ships in them. And I thought, oh, check that out. Especially at the beach, you see them. I thought, oh, maybe we're going to learn. No. We're going to learn how recycling first started. I think he's a for his time. He needs credit for the green trays that you set out your door right there. You all start making some boats, set them out for the recycling guy. I think Salvatore Bellomo in Italian means magazine ship builder. Also, it's in the family. It's in the name. It's in his blood. They could sense that he was going to go on to do great things with magazines. Holy moly. Maybe that his finisher. He talks about his magazine shipbuilding, that he also likes to use pamphlets, and he's done some of magazines where he's traveled, his many travels when he drove from L.A. to New York, and he got into shipbuilding then. And since his hands are so ginormous that he uses tweezers and nothing else but string and paper, ignore the glue that's on the table. Ignore the glue that's on the table. I think Mr. Alfred Hayes was very fascinated by his big bare hands that he could build such fragile ships. Yes, Lord Alfred Hayes is easily amused. That's why he's a good co-host. They are so impressed with his shipbuilding that they need another guest to stick around the whole episode and build ships, and they volunteer Mr. Salvatore for that. He is a good filler. He's he's a good background guy. He's off in the corner doing his arts and crafts. Occasionally, they'll fade out to commercial and fade into commercial with him showing his progress on his building this edition since he's on the wwf he's using a wwf magazine which is new to the company it's only been around for a few months at this time and building a ship out of the magazine that vince distributes i wouldn't know to feel insulted or honored if i knew somebody's chopping my magazine up and getting ships out of it. As he I bought guess, it it's all i guess to distribute if you cut it up and set it down the river i guess somebody would find it that's a good way to spread the word there you go free advertisement after that i believe they fade into a match between Mr. Ron Shaw. Yes, everyone's favorite enhancement talent, Ron Shaw. He gets the loudest cheer, so this had to be a new Salvatore premiere or somewhere near the beginning or maybe just new for this area that they were taping in because he was not very well welcomed. It was kind of, ah, okay, type crowd noise in the background. And Ron Shaw had a little bit of a cheers because they've heard of this guy. He's definitely been used more than a couple times for their sunshine athletes as I call them, stars. Ron Shaw's a stepping stone. Calling the match for this one, it's Vince and Mean Gene. Starts off with Ron Shaw as a blaze of fire. He's getting in all kinds of offensive moves. I'm sure the kids in the audience were thinking, yeah, this is the one. Ron's finally going to win a match. And, well, they were kind of disappointed towards the end. I was thinking the same thing. I thought, Dern, are they really going to show a match where they just interviewed a guy and he's going to lose <laughs> one of his matches? This is the first. I was ready to throw the Ron Shaw fan poster up or graffiti, as it's been noted. But, unfortunately, that was not the case. Yeah, I mean, you got to introduce new enhancement talent somehow. So, why not introduce them as shipbuilders? I was right with you. I'm like, this is Ron Shaw's moment. This is where it all turned around and he went on to 
capture goal, but yeah, it lasted about 40, 50 seconds, maybe two minutes. Salvatore does a flying body press and gets the one, two, three, and the fans go wild, as Jeff says. Yes. Uh, one note, I did notice that during the match, Salvatore had a head scissors on Ron Shaw. Both shoulders were down. The ref did not see it. Vince McMahon seen it, and when Ron Shaw broke out of the head scissors, he called it a kick out. Are you not entertained? I was entertained. The ref didn't see it. I don't know why Vince just didn't count himself since he was right there at it. And as you say, the fans loved it. They were very excited. The cameraman happened to turn maybe a little too soon toward the audience because when it pans off to the left, you see a lady yawning and you see little kids running up to the gate. Maybe they thought they were going to get their boat. But undoubtedly, the lady did not get their memo. And you can see that at the 26, 12 to 15 minute marker. I think that probably would have got Palumbo over if he would have handed out toy paper magazine boats to the kids you know if he was building planes that when he won instead of confetti little planes would go shooting out from the top i think it'd be great with the wwe magazine see advertising yeah build them out of those little subscription inserts that they put in there for people to start subscribing to the magazine yes oh we should have been on the marketing team in 84 could have got him over. And then you could build a boat with your favorite wrestler. It's all together. It's streamlined right there. Grand prize winner gets lunch and to build a boat with their favorite wrestler. At a weird hotel. We're going to call it a movie. We're going to take pictures. We'll just make a PowerPoint. <laughs> After the great Blumbo match, they end up going to another match with Rowdy Roddy Piper. And this match was from May 21st. That's pretty new for Tuesday Night Titans. And it was in Madison Square Garden. So they pulled out all the stops. Mr. Rowdy Piper's facing off against Ivan Putsky, the leather couch man, because he looks like leather with his dark tan and his weird skin and looks like basically anybody from florida that's lived there their whole life and is now in their 60s i'm sure mr putsky wasn't that old but way he looked he looked like he could have been it was a pretty devastating look and just a reminder kids don't lay out in the sun too long yeah they should have thrown that kind of psa out there when they talked about ivan putsky so rowdy rowdy piper comes out with something i don't know if it's ever been seen before this time in juncture comes out with his own band kind of face-ish, if you will. He's supposed to be a bad guy heel, but he comes out with his own band, and they're playing his entrance music that we so know and love, even to this day, that Piper's always came out to pretty much most of my childhood to the same entrance music, and this was no exception, except it was with the band, and 84 was very new at the time. Indeed. The music, like you said, was very memorable, and I believe that Piper was the first to have an actual live music theme to go into the wrestling match and then in 1985 the freebirds would lead to a musical and video entrance which would carry forward on yeah piper didn't sing his music like michael p.s hayes did though and since you said live i'll give it to you sergeant slaughter came out i think earlier with his own entrance music but i think it was something generic like the star spangled banner and they played it on tape so it wasn't nothing major it might even been the marine corps theme that they play definitely live i think piper probably was a trendsetter with his own band wrestlemania it up before there was a wrestlemania he was setting the stage as they say i definitely gave vince some ideas that's for sure so on this match it was gorilla monsoon and mean gene calling the action force we end up getting a very impatient Ivan Putsky waiting for Piper to finally get in the ring and to take off his attire. 
and he just wants to get things started. Just kind of odd coming from a baby face standpoint. They're usually kind of set back and like let the heel do their thing just as in our first match we discussed about S.T. Jones and Paul Orndorff. Usually they just kind of sit back and let them do their thing. But not this time. As you said, Budski was ready to rock and roll and Piper was ready to entertain the fans and that match pretty much started. Yeah, the psychology for this one kind of got off in a reverse fashion. But as usual, Piper did not let us down. He comes through and pretty much Ivan gets the best of him. At one point they're exchanging blows left and right and I caught this. I don't know what happened to Jeff, but we'll give it to him. You can't always catch everything. I didn't catch the miscount by Vince. I just took his word for it. But Ivan Putsky ended up exchanging blows with Piper and then Piper goes for an eye rake and then does the classic Ric Flair flop. I am very interested in this flop to see if it is physically correct. Did he do it to the left and then flop? It's at the 36 minute 43 second mark for anyone that wants to watch it either on YouTube off our page. Our Facebook page? Off that page, yes. Oh, the Facebook.com forward slash the tag team podcast page. That's the one. Or if you aren't near Facebook or YouTube at the time off the network. It's at the same time mark there. It looked pretty Flair-esque. I'm pretty sure Flair was doing it back then also. I think he probably borrowed it from Flair. He did come over from Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling at this time, so he might have borrowed that. Oh, he didn't borrow. He stole it. Let's keep the heel. <laughs> thing going. He definitely stole it. After that, he decides to get back up and trade blows again, and mysteriously, Mr. Putsky drops like a sack of rocks. Looks to me like Piper's been into his tights, Gene. Putsky went down awful quick there. I think it was from the odor. I think it was the odor. I think it was. And then we see Mr. Piper put his hands in his pants, and then a drawstring come out. Yeah, not what you're thinking, folks. And then we hear Brilla Monsoon say that Piper had something in his hands. I didn't see anything. The cameraman obviously didn't see anything. Ivan felt it. We may never know. Gorilla Monsoon has eagle eyes. And yes, I would love for Piper to still be kicking so I could ask him at the next wrestling convention what happened with that match. Because I saw no foreign object. Nope, I didn't. Budski felt it and he got back up. He was going incredible Hulk mode and started Hulk smashing everything in sight. And the band also helped out Piper in this a la New Day. Started playing and then... Piper started rocking also. It always helps to have music. I think music is food for the soul. When your soul starts rocking, well, you know. Putski goes wild and gets a wild punch in, and it lands right on the referee and gets him disqualified. Piper wins. Hey, win's a win. We'll count it. Since there was no foreign object, I call it a clean win. Ivan just got too reckless. I think if he would have been more concentrated and more focused on Piper, I don't think he would have went down that way. Yeah, he should have powered through it. He ain't tough. That's the problem. So our next segment's going to be the mailbag. They go into this just like they did the last episode. A mailbag comes flying in, lands on Lord Alford's table there. I want the mailbag's job. I want to know who the guy was through the mailbag, and I'd like to see if that job's still open. I have a theory that a football was in there, but that's just my theory. It kind of looked like a football was shaped in there in the mailbag. No, it just wasn't mailed by the noise it makes. Definitely not. Or it was some massive 
send me some stuff mailbag. But I digress. Fred Hayes makes the comment, no wonder the dogs chase them, referring to the mailman. Since two episodes in a row, he's been viciously attacked by the mailbag. I wonder how their mail people are over there in Britain. I'd like to hear Vince challenge him on that, maybe next episode. But the first question they ask is Captain Lou going to manage the Samoans again? To sum it up, Vince basically says he doubts it since the last time they were on the show, they didn't look like they were getting along too well. And then they also ask the question, is there a title match coming up for Don Morocco? Vince says Don Morocco has to work his way back up the ladder. It sounded like to me it was a little kayfabe-ish that maybe Vince doesn't like Don Morocco too much or doesn't think that high of him at this point in juncture. I think he believe he said that he went off and went to Hawaii and Lord Alfred Hayes had to come back with, well, maybe he wasn't just lounging around. Maybe he was working out. There's our workout theme coming back into play. Next question was also a double question. They ask, is Hulk Hogan the one that wrestled in Olympic Stadium about five years ago? And does he play guitar? And Vince never answers the first question. And then he follows up with bass guitar saying, yes, he's an accomplished musician because as we all know, the great Terry Bollea is on all of our albums and plays guitar like Slash and we all know him. So of course, I don't know why she would even ask that. They also wanted to know if they would show any of his matches on TNT and Vince says, I think we have a surprise for her. Stay tuned to this episode. Lord Alfred Hayes reaches for a third letter, but then didn't get the memo that Vince was done. So he has to sneak it back in there as Vince talks and act like nothing happened and they get ready for Mr. Freddy Blassie to come up to the stage. Very classy Blassie, what I call him. Blassie is the star to me for this episode. I mean, Paul Randolph was good, but I like Blassie. He just kind of shoots and goes every way on his interview. He's definitely the best interview on the stage for this episode, hands down. He starts off by showing off his rings, as he did on the last episode in the Lehigh Valley It's Your Turn public access show that we put a link up there to on our podcast on our page. 16 carats. Oh my. Yes, Fitz was very impressed and didn't know if he had a camera that could capture that ring, but eventually they do go to a close-up of it, so Blassie can show it off. I was very impressed with the production value of that. I'm glad they got a camera to show off those little pinky rings. It's all in the detail. They talk a little bit about Blassie, and then they surprise him by going to a match of his from 1952. It's Freddie Blassie versus Baron Lee Waoni, and they end up wrestling on classic television. What did you take away from this match there, Jeff? In 1952, they didn't like doing a lot. To me, it was a very lazy match. The, the moral of the story is don't lay down. I think you could be the champion as long as you didn't lay down. Because from the beginning of that clip to the end of that clip, it's going back and forth and stretching. And I don't know how a lot of people dealt with that. There weren't a lot going on. I guess it was 52, so it was kind of new. Yeah, it was definitely still real then. But they tried to make it look as much like Olympic wrestling as possible with stretches and submission moves more so than high flying off the top rope elbow drops or anything of that nature basically just a lot of submission moves and occasionally you'd see some punching and stuff like that or this commentary i came back with two things it's either glass full glass empty type deal they have either the easiest job in the world back in 1952 wrestling commentating or they had the hardest job in the world back in 1952 wrestling commentating and here's what i mean i'm gonna play a little clip from this match and you let me know if you notice anything on it. Has his head scissors. Oh, 
Nice his head scissors. Good luck getting away with that on Raw. So either that was one hell of a head scissors hole, or he accidentally unplugged the cord from the microphone at the commentator's desk. Uh, the only thing I really noticed was the one person in the background really, really loud over everybody else. Couldn't distinguish exactly what she was saying. Oh, wouldn't you like to be her neighbor? <laughs> Pretty sure she was rooting for Freddy. But yeah, that, that must be it must be a hard job. I guess you don't really have a lot of history on the wrestlers back then. And sort of when they sit idle, it's it's hard to kind of talk about anything. And maybe they were just caught up in the match. I'm going to go on the attack and play devil's advocate because on third watch, he was doing some punching and trying to free himself up. And yeah, the commentator did not acknowledge any of the punching attempts or him maybe tightening up the leg scissors because of the punching or anything like that. So I'm going to say it was probably one of the easiest jobs. Maybe he had a bathroom break. Could have been. Nature might have called for that 40 seconds that he just laid out or maybe he just wanted the fans to tell the view. I don't know. He did, however, give the WWF a good soundbite that they would go on to use in their WWE DVD entrances. And that was this one that you'll notice if you've watched any WWE DVDs or pay-per-views. I think it would be circa 2000 to 2009. Seems like they change it about every 10 years or so. And this was what they were using at that time. Yes, sir, we promised you a great main event here tonight. And they would go on to spool other stuff. And they actually showed a little clip of that match during that intro, too, that they showed before the pay-per-views and DVDs. And it was one second in. If somebody would like to go to our Facebook page, I put a link up there, and it shows the full promo. But if you just watch one second in, you'll see what I'm talking about. They play that clip and show a little bit of Freddy Blassie's match. Got their money's worth out of that footage. Oh, yeah. And I did notice once Vince McMahon mentioned them going to that match, Freddy kind of looked a little confused. He looked like a kind of sand in a cookie jar kind of deal. Like he didn't really know what was going on. He was really caught off guard. I don't think he knows what TV is. Wait, they were recording that? <laughs> Shit. That was the worst commentary I've ever heard. No way that was recorded. Sure, that's me. I don't look like me. Kind of looked like a young Kurt Douglas a little bit there. But the footage was kind of fuzzy, so it's hard to tell what anyone looked like. I couldn't tell you what his opponent looked like if you put him in a lineup with other people. Oh, they all blur in the end. Yeah, it was very blurry, even for black and white TV. I mean, I've seen some stuff on that your Honeymooners, your I Love Lucy, Leave It to Beaver. That was clear, but yeah, wrestling production apparently back then did not have that kind of budget. I believe once they come back, they start referring to the belt that he has. Do you have any information on the belt that he carried? Pacific World Heavyweight Champion. Not sure how many people held it before Mr. Blassie, but he was quick to inform us that when he decided to leave and head east, they retired it and it went with him. That that stuck out with me because during my last podcast, our last podcast. No, it's yours. It totally wasn't mine. Well, whatever. During the last podcast, I had referenced one of the one of the main title changes was Hulk Hogan actually escaping the camel clutch to win the World Wrestling Championship title instead of Bob Backlund. And during this interview, Vince McMahon proceeded to tell Freddie how he did not get that title and proceed to rub it in his face that he did not get the title. And Freddie was getting a little frustrated, but at least he had the Pacific title. I think if had Freddie have gotten the title, it wouldn't have been the WWF title anyway because there was the WWF. WF back then. But nonetheless, Freddie said it was a title he wanted and never got to get an add to his trophy collection. That's why he manages the Iron Sheik, and when the Iron Sheik won it, he got to wear it. I guess living vicariously through the Sheik is good enough. Hey, when you got 16 carat rings, do whatever you want. 
Kind of like the million dollar man's million dollar belt. Correct. When you have a million dollars, you just make your own belt. Get your houseboy Vincent to shine it up for you. Yes, go spend a million dollars on a belt. That is very productive. Freddie Blassie says that they shouldn't have lost that match after they come back from that clip that Bob Backlund was supposed to be the one, as Jeff told us last week on his podcast, that Bob Backlund should have been the one to face the Iron Sheik and Hulk Hogan was not signed to that match, so they were not prepared for him. They were training for Bob Backlund. He's just not tough enough, I think that's what it is. He wasn't ready for the 24-inch pythons. Fred Blassie also gave me a history lesson in his interview, and that was the famous saying that everyone knows, and they were talking about signing the contract. If they sign the contract tomorrow with Hulk Hogan, gladly put his signature on it. But I tell you, we're ready for him any time he puts his John Henry on that contract. So you gotta put your John Henrys on contracts, people. I'm not really sure how you do that. I don't think Hancock come out until the late 90s. People didn't recognize him on the Declaration of Independence till the 90s. They're still recognizing the guy that laid down the train tracks with his hammer. Big John Studd? Big John Studd. Big John Henry. I think they're brothers from another mother. And you know what? There was something else Freddie was not ready for. They did the gong. have a gong, and Freddie Blassie was like, what was that? Startled him. Started having flashbacks to the war or something. I believe you've been gonged, is what Vince tells him. And he says, what is this, the Major Bose show? And since we all know who Major Bose is, that I'm going to have to explain that. Just kidding. Major Bose. I had no clue what the heck he was referring to. So I asked Bosley to get on it and find out what the heck Major Bose is. And Bosley's like, okay. Major Bose. Edward Bose who generally called himself Major Edward Bose, was an American radio personality of the 1930s and 1940s whose Major Bose Amateur Hour was the best-known amateur talent show in radio during its 18-year run, 1935-52, on NBC Radio and CBS Radio. His show consistently ranked among radio's top 10 programs throughout its entire run. Bose's familiar catchphrase, around and around she goes and where she stops nobody knows, spoken in the familiar avuncular tones for which he was so renowned, whenever it was time to spin its wheel of fortune, the device by which some contestants were called to perform. In the early days of the show, whenever a performer was simply too terrible to continue, Bose would stop the act by striking a gong, a device that would be revived in the 1970s by Chuck Barris's infamous The Gong Show. Bose heard from thousands of listeners who objected to his terminating these acts prematurely, so he abandoned the gong in 1936. Fred Blassie was a longtime listener and knew that from the one year that he did it, 1935, or he quit listening to the show before 1936 and thought he still did it. So even for then, it was kind of an obscure reference. He should have just said the gong show. I vaguely remember the gong show. I've never seen an episode of the gong show. It's pop culture for the 70s. I've heard of it and knew the concept, but couldn't tell you one person that was ever on it. Oh, no. I've just seen it now. I've, I've never watched it. I just happened to see it as I was skimming through YouTube or one of those. Here's the greatest moments in history TV shows or revolutionizing you know, how they do their, their thing. I love the 70s. I gotcha. Indeed. And little did I know that the song was an introduction to a very, very, very famous manager, wrestler, and a host, Mr. Fuji. We know him anyway as Mr. Fuji as a wrestling manager, but he was also a wrestler at one time, and he is quite the host 
if you ever come over to his house, we discovered. Yeah, Fuji was a great manager during our day. Very easy to recognize. Kind of looked like Odd Job from James Bond type deal. His little tie and stuff like that. As far as being a wrestler, they show one match of him wrestling great. Everyone's third, fifth favorite enhancement talent, Nick DiCarlo. And it was a quick match, but it was from beginning to end. Master Fuji comes out with his sacred LeBron James ritual of throwing up stuff in the air. They didn't have chalk, so he used salt. And then after that, he bows, and then they go into the match, and Nick DiCarlo gets a few moves on Mr. Fuji. But ultimately, Mr. Fuji ends up getting the win when he goes out there and does a turnbuckle big belly splash. Kind of all of Vader, except he doesn't weigh anything like Vader, but nevertheless, it's the same type of move that Vader used when he would beat his opponents. And they had Vince and Pat Patterson on call for that. Then they go back to Mr. Fuji inside the studios. They come back, actually, from a commercial, I think, after that. And they come back and show Salvatore's progress on the boat and all that. And Mr. Fuji does not think Salvatore is very cool. Perhaps you have no girlfriend. <laughs> Perhaps you know God on date. I feel so sorry for you. I was very sorry that Salvatore does nothing but build ships and thinks he has no social life. I would disagree with that. I think if you look on the Tinder app or if you were to go to any of the dating websites, shipbuilding is possibly one of the first traits women look for when looking for a guy. Somebody that's self-tanded, self-spoken, and has a lot of time on their hands. I think they probably look for real shipbuilders. That's probably how Salvatore gets so many dates though. He puts magazine in like six font and shipbuilding in like 12 font so they just see something small. Shipbuilder. Perfect guy. I don't think he specifies paper or steel boat. I think he just says shipbuilder and they just assume. This guy built yachts. He must have money. So then Mr. Fuji is quick to tell us that he has big surprise for us. And if you'd like to describe this great surprise, probably the best three minutes, well, two minutes on television for sure. Yes, we open back for commercial, I believe, with the surprise of his lady doing a very cultural Japanese dance for about two or three minutes. I was a little hypnotized, to say the least at first. I've never seen anything like it before, and it was nice to get to know the culture of Japan. I hated it. I thought it was boring, weird, and totally would not win the Monday Night Wars for anyone if they were to show it in the 21st century. I was flipping over and I saw that. I'd be like, what the hell is this? Next channel. Because yeah, it resembled nothing of wrestling whatsoever. It's just a lady dancing to Japanese music. I was not amused. Versus the Nitro Girls dancing to music. That tells me this is wrestling. Stacy Keebler. Moving on. Kimberly Page. So once that very culture segment is over, we learn that they have started a set, a very Japanese set, and it requires the removal of your shoes. And if you look at the top right corner, you will see that Mr. Alfred Hayes has already derobed and got into the formal Japanese clothing and is grinning very, very widely at the awkwardness of Mr. McMahon having to take his jacket off and take his socks and shoes off. This is only a two-hour show, so we definitely can't have Lord Alfred Hayes getting dressed on the show along with Vince. It would cut into all the time. I think Mr. Hayes, Mr. Alfred would take the hour and a half. I would have loved to hear some of his commentary though as he was going through it. I wonder if they have any loopers or backstage when they release the TNT box set. You know it's coming. Right after we finish the podcast, they'll release the whole box set. The fans want it. I'm ready. Let's make a half box set. Let's do it. Then they'll finally see all these great TNT moments that they're missing 
and can share it with all their friends and family wherever they go. No Wi-Fi connection needed. Nope, don't need it. But for me, that was one of the entertaining, probably the most entertaining was seeing Vince's face whenever she said, you must take your socks off. And then they have this weird sock for your big toe and then it splits the rest of your feet over. So it actually splits out your, your big toe. Think Ninja Turtles. Very Ninja Turtles. And then Mr. Fuji proceeds to tell how the women please him, unlike us Americans, but we strive to win the family show. Which I was fine with. So you're learning. It's, it's a culture learning. Yeah, how the women serve the men, and it's an honor for them to serve the men. They don't need to be thanked or anything like that. It's their honor to, to do whatever the man needs. He needs them to take off another man's socks and put on their Japanese socks, and they do it. Elbow or shoulder hurting a little bit. He needs a massage. She does it. Can't pour his own drinks. She does it. Yes. I believe they were doing sake shots, if I'm not mistaken. Japanese rice, as Fuji was quick to inform us, sake. I don't know how well that would have went over with us. I don't know about you, but me, I'm not a connoisseur of rice shots. I've never had it, so I will not knock it. But apparently Fuji loves it because his bowl was double the size of Lord Alfred Hayes and McMahon's. I am fully knocking over here, by the way. So everything was going fine, going good, until the second round of shots. And Dadly, the lady got in the way of Mr. Fuji and proceeded to spill some sake all over his arm. And he lost it. It is considered an insult to him when that happened in front of his guests. No matter how many times he was reassured that it was fine, she will pay. In his own way, I believe he said, he will make her pay. He will punish her. Of course, after changing mystery men's socks and rubbing shoulders, don't think it could get much worse. He will have to go to Dr. D's house and feed his kids. Sandwiches instead of pizza and chicken? That's the one. So after that, they end up going to commercials so Fuji can calm down after he Japanese chops the little table that their sake was sitting on. And that table was tough because it didn't really break that cleanly. Arm the table! Exactly. If anyone doesn't know what they were talking about, watch us in Botchmania. It's a good time killer when you're not listening to this podcast. Yes. It took him a couple times, but he, he did get it. The table one, Fuji zero on that one. And I'm glad they went to commercial to kind of calm him down, even though when they come back from commercial, he was still about at a seven on a scale of ten. He was still kind of calming down. But Vince strokes his ego, Fuji's, not Vince's, and he discusses Mr. Fuji, his new career path of being a manager, and that he's now managing the great Don Morocco, the magnificent Don Morocco. And Fuji says that he's good at managing, and they basically go into a match of Don Morocco versus Billy Travis, famous Billy Travis from episode one. They have Mean Gene and Lord Alfred Hayes on the call, and would you like to discuss the finish for this match, Jeff? I'll let you take the finish. There was no finish to this match. This is the only one that they showed that wasn't part of the clip footage that they like to show at the end of the episode. It had no finish. So they just went on to that, and there was no finish. I can only guess that Billy Travis gets the win because he's the enhancement talent. That's what they like to do. Ruin debuts with managers. But Mr. Fuji was able to get in some hard tongue lashings and mock, and many times as he was tossed out of the ring, referee made sure that no physical contact was made. As we know, Mr. Fuji is notorious for involving himself. Yes, and when they got back to the studio, my long life question for Mr. Fuji was finally answered because growing up, I didn't think of him as that bad of a guy. He was always happy and laughing, so how could he be a bad guy? Bad guys aren't always happy. They're usually beating their wives or their mamas or their mama's wives, usually just berating people, but Mr. Fuji looked like he was always happy. Good mood. And then finally, Lord Alfred Hayes explains 
sense to me why that is, and Mr. Fuji goes into further depth. It's always difficult to understand the inscrutable East, but Mr. Fuji, he doesn't seem to be inscrutable. He smiles, he laughs, he enjoys other people's <laughs> suffering. <laughs> very, very, very true. I think what I like Americans suffer. When they suffer, I just giggle. <laughs> you understand? He makes me so happy. <laughs> I cannot talk because I'm so happy. An American is screaming, mercy, mercy. <laughs> Goes a little uh, Mike Myers there a little bit with that promo. A little like fat bastard. I believe the theme to that, what I understood, was make Americans suffer, then buy lots of American properties and things. Yeah, pretty much Japanese takeover 84. Start making better cars and just make Americans buy our stuff and we'll just export stuff to them and sell it five times more expensive than what we do over here. That's where it all started with Fuji. So many revolutionary people in this time. Nobody saw it coming. Fuji was definitely out of his time and probably could have been a great manager going forward instead of a wrestler that they showed on there. It looked like he was a little bit past his prime for wrestling, but if you watch old Flair stuff, when he came back to WWF, and you'd say it's past his prime too. But they may deal with it, so. They could talk. Mr. Fuji could talk. You wonder Mr. Fuji would talk you'd listen he try to understand but you would listen he had that aura had that thing about him that made him mr fuji kind of like rick flair does flair's got the charisma and he's got that glow kind of okay this is the man kind of deal and then mr fuji you knew he didn't mess around doing playing moral of the story salvatore learn to talk and you can have a career forever in wrestling you could be a manager and build boats after that match they fade out and tease us with big john stud coming up next he walks out into the set does nothing to acknowledge Mr. Salvatore Balumbo, which is kind of ironic. He goes heel basically on all wrestlers that they can't pin him. They're no match for him. The only two that are close would be Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. As he commonly gets mistaken for Hulk Hogan, but then people realize that Hulk Hogan isn't as big as Big John Studd, so that Big John Studd cannot be Hulk Hogan. When Vince McMahon was introducing Big John Studd, for my comfort, he got a little excited mentioning describing Big John Stud, big, meaty, no fat on his butt. Keeping with the theme. It was almost like he was sizing up as a chicken or a turkey. Keeping with the theme. Yes, yes, he he kept the theme spot on. So they bring him out there. He does his little spiel, and then they go to a match. And who do you think Big John Stud's gonna wrestle? Who could it be? Could it be St. Jones? Ron Shaw? I'm going Ron Shaw. Billy Travis? It is none other than Salvatore Palumbo. Boatman? It is Boatman. Unbelievable. This is the first match that wasn't a half match. The show from beginning to end that has two air quotes named wrestlers in them. But this was somebody's probably mid-card match. I would say main event even for a house show. This would be a pretty weird house show. Main event. So we'll say it's probably the mid-card match for one of these house shows. They have Mean Gene and Lord Alfred Hayes on commentary. Mean Gene's quick to inform us that he doesn't believe they announced Big John Studd's weight correctly. Because he looks a lot bigger than what they said, but there's not an ounce of fat on him. This is the underlining theme for Big John Stud. He comments on it. Vince comments on it. Big John Stud comments on it. That's what we're supposed to take away from Big John Stud, that there isn't an ounce of fat 
going on him, even though there most certainly is. His pants are kind of pulled up to hide some of that gut. It was actually a short match for the two wrestlers that actually ended up being on the same show. I was looking for a little bit of awkwardness, but I don't guess. Big John Studd didn't really matter to him since he finds it difficult for anybody to try to pin him. Give Salvatore his due. He did get some offense in the beginning. He did. I'm just glad he was smart enough to duck the elbows, or I think the match would have ended much sooner. Oh, yeah, because as we saw with the finish of the match, that elbow was deadly and really was just the icing. Big John Studd totally could have won it on the shove that he gave him out of the corner and pinned him there, but he decided to do the corner shove and a big elbow drop for the pin. But in all fairness, Salomo did go pretty far across the ring from one side of the ring to the other. It was your classic big show, big anybody, small guy type of move that you'd see nowadays where they do the shove and the guy goes flying across. Except Salvatore isn't really as small as a Rey Mysterio or some of your other lightweight guys. I think Big John went through Rey Mysterio to the second or third row. Yeah, he just would have went clear over the top row. Would have been a fun Royal Rumble if those two were in it together. Oh yeah. We go back to Big John Studd on the TNT set. He goes all heel and basically starts a feud in motion with Andre the Giant. But I did some research and I saw that Andre the Giant and John Studd have been feuding basically since 1982 off and on. So I guess this was a rekindling of the feud that they had. Originally, it was the same thing similar to what they had. I believe Blassie was the manager originally of Big John Studd and they did a challenge there that no one could slam him and that ended up being the same thing they showed in WrestleMania with Andre and Bobby Heaton this time as the manager. So shout out to closed circuit television and in 1982 they could just redo the same angle and no one really said anything. I did notice toward the end as they were wrapping up Big John's promo as Big John's walking around threatening everybody as the big giant. He did go over and he started tapping on Mr. Lomo's boats and Lomo stood up. Tap on a man's boat. Yeah. He said, hey, don't, don't mess with my boats. So I, th- I think John got the message because he went back and McMahon got in there and John kind of backed off a little bit. Salvatore does intimidate you with his voice for sure. He's a man of action. He speaks softly and carries a big magazine boat. Yes, so he can build other boats. For that, they go to commercial and then when we come back... Clip mania running wild. That's right. Clips from here on out. But the next one was Jesse the Body Ventura versus Ron Shaw. Don't tell me. Ron Shaw wins. We don't know. Dang it! I bet he does, and that's why they didn't show it. Maybe. But I did like the pink tips that Jesse the Body Ventura was rocking back then. Oh, yeah. One of a kind hairstyle for sure. Can't wait to see more of it. Vince tells us that Jesse's victorious, but yeah, we never see it, so I totally believe Ron Shaw finally wins his first match ever. That's right. Pictures or it didn't happen. Exactly. Good thing we had those for when you're lunch with your favorite wrestler, or else I would totally not believe that that ever happened. Next clip they show is Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas didn't start in the beginning. This could be when they had the title belts and lost them to Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch, as those were the opponents. On commentary, they had Mean Gene and Vince. And once again, the winner for that match was... We don't know! Question marks. But if it was indeed the one for the tag title, we'll know that Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch actually won the match. After that match, they're going to show some different wrestlers for sure, because, I mean, you just showed a match with Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch in it and Rocky and Tony Atlas, so you're definitely done talking about those wrestlers. So what was the next match they decided to show, Jeff? The next match? 
That's right. Adonis and Murdoch. They go right back to the same people they just showed in the match in a different match. But I'm guessing they won this match, even though we also still saw no finish. They were facing the great earlier mentioned SD Jones with Tony Guerrera. And both of those guys are kind of job mid-carter, same level type guys that both held titles before, but it doesn't happen that often. So why they went to another match to show the same two wrestlers that were in the previous match, I have no idea. They could have put over two other wrestlers in that spot instead of just talking about the same guys twice. That was horrible. But yes, yes, I was with you on that one. I'm not sure why they had two of the same on two different clips. I guess they needed some time filler, but we did get to see SD Jones in tag action. I was getting a little hype. I, I was glad to see SD back from the beginning. Yes, it was very nice to see him back in some other form of match and wearing a different outfit, I believe, than he was in his previous match. Mean Gene and Vince were on the call. And of course, the great finish of that match was there was no finish. So in all these clips, we have no finish on any of the matches. But I'm pretty sure Murdoch and Donis won. I think so, too. I think SD Jones probably didn't have it in him after wrestling Paul Orndorff at the top of the show to compete again in a tag team match and wrestle again. So hope he got paid extra for that night. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. He deserves it. He probably works harder than most to look that bad. He definitely does his special delivery quite well. Indeed. They wrap up the show by going back to Mr. Salvatore to see how he's doing on building his ships out of magazines. And they're impressed with how far he's come along, but Salvatore is quick to inform him that he's not done, so don't criticize. And that he put a little cannon on there because they want to be both that can hold their own. They're passive, but if anybody tries to mess with them, their paper cannon will take them out. I don't know how I feel about a paper cannon. I think that he should have invested in some sort of plastic, something that when they pay shit goes against magazine code. Can't go plastic, man. Could you use the binding that holds the pages together? Stapler? I don't know. I would just want to be there when they finally light the paper cannon to attack the other boats. That would be glorious. I don't know how I feel about that statement. I was kind of picturing that in my head. And then it's, well, if we light the cannon, we're going down. If we don't light the cannon, we're going down. <laughs> to lose-lose. Backward engineering. So comparing episode one to episode two, I would say definitely the format of the match has changed. We had mostly entrances, at least now, and announcing of guys coming into the ring. They seem to... To shorten up a couple of the matches towards the end there with the clips I think last time even with the clips some of them actually had finishes but I could be mistaken on that other than that it seems like they kept most of the format the same they still had some vignettes stuff like that they did more interviews on stage this time around than they did the last time they only had Captain Lou on there last time and the Samoans but the Samoans really didn't talk much it was mostly their cooking show that they got their their overness with so we've got the cooking show and then we have the boat building to kind of time feel the slots through. I can't wait for next week's episode to see what kind of great time fillers we have. Preview for next week of what they're saying is ahead is Jimmy Snuka, the great Lou Thez, which should be very interesting because not too much out there on Lou Thez in an interview type deal. Usually it's just maybe a clip of his matches back in the day in a wrestling documentary or something, and that's usually about it. So it'll be good to see 
Luthez back in the day when he was still relevant, kind of for wrestlers of 84. It was their version of Hulk Hogan. The guys that are out there now, they looked up to and stuff like that. Another visit with Mr. Wonderful, Paul Orndorff. Apparently when he's not in the gym, he likes to go out and have people tape his day-to-day life. And the Polish power, the leather man himself, Ivan Putski, gives us a lesson in Polish culture. So I look forward to comparing Polish culture versus Japanese culture. And not to spoil anything, but there could be some cooking. Whoa! Okay, Fabe. So we go cooking, boat building, cooking. You know what that means for episode four, don't you? What? We're going to be building boats out of cooked food. Can't wait. That'd be awesome. Uh, that sounds so exciting. Maybe they'll have all the wrestlers in there cooking and building, and then somebody will bump Big John Stud and just go eight doo-doo on everybody. Iron Chef WWF. Yeah, we need that. Get on it. What do you want? You keep touching my leg! But that is the episode of the Tag Team Podcast, the number two episode of the Tag Team Podcast, talking about June 12th, 1984. Go out there, rank us, do all that good stuff so that we can get some views, some hits, some popularity on iTunes. Tell your friends, tell your friends' friends, tell your family, tell your family friends, tell your friends of your family that we're out there and that they need to be listening to the WWF TNT episode companion for the vault section of the WWE Network work the tag team podcast go now go tell people follow us on social media on facebook facebook.com forward slash the tag team podcast on twitter at tag team on google plus tag team podcast or email us at the tag team podcast at gmail.com or on the tagline leave us a voicemail 6016544 tag that's 6016544824 thank you for listening to the tag team podcast join jeff and john next week as they continue to break down wwf tuesday night titans ron shaw using his rather sizable long legs to his advantage moments ago boy those are a couple of real good sized upper thighs